if I have trouble talking to you about my vaginal discharge because I feel like there's a disconnect, how am I going to talk to you about fertility? You know, something that's truly profound. Welcome to Cringe Watchers, a podcast where we invite our expert friends to binge watch TV and talk about sex. For this episode, we watched Master of None and asked Dr. Camila Phillips, who deserves to be parents? Layla, are you binging or cringing this week? I am binging, or at least I'm binging as much as Apple TV will let me because they only release one episode of a time, but I'm getting into this new show, Physical. Have you seen it? I haven't. It's Rose Byrne playing an 80s housewife, but really the show is about some self-righteous liberals from Berkeley who moved to Southern California and think that they're so much better than the superficial 80s suburban beach town Californian people around them. And maybe they're not. And it's also about one woman discovering aerobics and becoming obsessed. I would not recommend this show for anyone who has issues with disordered eating or body dysmorphia. You do get very close to someone's experience with both of those things. But if you're okay with that topic and uh, into headbands, wristbands, leg warmers, and just the 80s aesthetic, highly recommend. Nice. I'm so there. And I've been a fan of Rose Burns since Bridesmaids. So I'm ready for this. Lori, are you binging or cringing? I'm cringing this week, Layla. If anyone ever asks us about our podcast name and specifically about the word cringe, instead of defining it for them, I'm just going to point them to a video posted by Mark Zuckerberg this weekend of himself riding an electric hydrofoil surfboard as the sun sets over a body of water, waving the American flag and listening to John Denver's Take Me Home Country Roads. That was a long sentence to say that Mark Zuckerberg is embarrassing himself again, possibly the most meme-worthy billionaire of all the billionaires, and the competition is fierce. I'm glad he's getting made fun of because this is probably the cringiest thing I've seen in a very long time. The fact that he is a billionaire and this is how he chooses to spend his time is one reason to be cringing, Um, but another one is that he's using these expensive toys and annexing parts of Hawaii and creating a compound for himself and his family off of stolen land while claiming to be just a regular American and of the people and using country music to convey that and blindly and blatantly pander to cover up for the fact that all of his policies are terrible for our country and are literally undemocratic. So It's cringy culturally, it's cringy politically, and it's my cringe of the week. You're right. It defines cringe. Today, we are talking about a decidedly more feminist topic, and I'm so glad and honored to be able to have had this conversation with you. We're talking about the fourth episode of season three of Master of None, the Netflix show that was co-created by Aziz Ansari and Alan Yang. This new season is called Moments in Love, and it is a dramatic pivot from the first two seasons of the show and focuses specifically and almost exclusively on Lena Waite's character, Denise, and her partner, Alicia. The episode that we talk about is incredibly powerful because you really zoom in on one 
Black queer woman's experience trying to get pregnant. It's true. I watched this show totally transfixed. I was crying. I was laughing. I was in it. It was emotional. And our guest felt the same way. This episode really started a conversation, at least in my corner of the internet, about fertility, Blackness, and queerness um, in a way that I haven't seen happen in a long time. If you've seen Master of None before, you probably remember Denise uh, mainly for the Thanksgiving episode uh, for which Aziz Ansari and Lena Waithe won an Emmy because it was so well written focusing on this Black queer character. And the episode we're focusing on today is kind of standalone. So we don't need to spoil that much about the season. Just know that this is a standalone episode. It is focused on the character of Alicia and really traces her fertility journey. So to get into the episode and these themes, we spoke with Dr. Camila Phillips, an OBGYN lactation consultant and founder of Kala Women's Health in Manhattan. Definitely go check her out and we hope you enjoy this episode. Dr. Phillips, welcome. We are so appreciative that you took the time to speak with us today. We know you're in the middle of a very busy week. You're doing surgery. You're caring for patients. So thank you for making the time to be on Cringe Watchers with us. And I just want to jump right in because this episode is so meaty and there's so much to pack. And let's start with just some of the basics. From what I understand about this episode, the show's creators have said that they consulted with IVF patients and doctors and really wanted to get the story right. So I'm curious for you as an OBGYN and, and someone who sees patients who are dealing with fertility issues, what did you think of this episode and in what ways was the experience did uh, Alicia, who was played by Naomi Aki, the brilliant, beautiful Naomi Aki, in what ways was that experience common uh, or what ways was it really uncommon based on what you see in your day-to-day? Thanks for having me. And any conversation about fertility needs to be magnified a million billion times because we don't talk about it enough. And I think that that was really reflected in the episode. Like it hurt my soul. There were parts of it where I just really felt for her. So the emotion, that emotional roller coaster. I think was pretty spot on. The devastation, the anxiety, the loneliness, the uncertainty, a lot of negative emotions, the isolation, the discrimination, being a woman trying to do this on her own without a male partner, like, oh my goodness, from like a physician interaction level to a clinic level to the insurance level. It's so layered, all of the sort of negative emotions that get piled on top of people going through this. I think it was pretty spot on, really. And then at the end where she gets her test, you know, she finds one friend that she can connect with through this journey that gives her just the ounce of hope that she needs to be the bad bitch and, you know, just take it on which goes to show how much women need to talk about this and need to be supported. Um, that roller coaster of, of emotions I thought was pretty spot on. I love the bad bitch recurring mantra. <laughs> I think it applies. Yeah. To- you have to like get hype. Yeah. 
you know, uh, you, you have you, to get hype. It's a journey. Truly. And this was actually based on uh, a real life Alicia's true journey. There was a woman named Alicia Lombardini who wrote a piece in the New York Times and she said, single or queer, regardless of our age and demographics, we all deserve the chance to become parents. And I think, mm -hmm. you know, when Lori and I've been talking about that piece in this episode, that word deserve really jumps out. Like who deserves to be a parent? And I'm wondering from your, where you sit as a provider, how did Alicia, the character's race and her sexuality factor into her ability to pursue parenthood? Yeah, so I think both her race and sexuality, I don't use the words obstacles so much because I think both her ethnicity and orientation are actually gifts to give you know, and to share with this world, I think that, you know, people of color, queer couples have a very unique parenting perspective to offer to this, you know, concept of what parenting is. But when it comes to medicine, and when it comes to fertility, I feel like it's, it's an obstacle that we need to talk about and acknowledge so that we can be very upfront about the biases that are both seen and unseen that prevent people from pursuing parenthood. One thing that I experience in my practice, which is heavily women of color, is that in general as a community, it's not talked about like fertility, right? It's this underlying assumption that women of color um, are breeders, have children easily, get pregnant easily. And so if you struggle with that, like who do you go to and who do you talk to in your community, because you're supposed to reproduce, right? And that should come easily. So I think that's one thing that we need to talk about as it relates to the people in our community, but also as we approach the medical system, which is still largely white, male, and heterosexual. So there's barriers there, like as a Black queer woman coming into a space and wanting to discuss a really sensitive issue. And, you know, if I have trouble talking to you about my vaginal discharge, because I feel like there's a disconnect. How am I going to talk to you about fertility? You know, something that's truly profound and uh, personal. Some of the women I see compared to their white counterparts tend to have significant differences in insurance. And I think this is often related to the type of jobs and work that we do. The insurance usually doesn't cover reproductive services, so they are forced to really dig into their pockets. And the prices can be, you know, as we saw, like really astronomical. And that insurance slash financial burden is overrepresented in communities of color, which is something that we also need to find a way to address. But that, that's a larger like social issue, right? Like, why are we paid less? Why are we sort of targeted into these jobs that don't have the same coverage as uh, white women do. So that was one piece. And obviously there's more things to talk about, but just giving you three highlights. But and then also from the queer perspective, again, when there's a mistrust, a disconnect, an aversion to the medical community, how do I come to you and say, hey, look, me and my wife, what, what, who? you know, me and my like that, even from the language we struggle with in medicine, but, you know, how do we uh, really speak about like the homophobia in medicine that, and, and our internal bias that discourages our patients from coming to talk to us about this really um, important 
life event that I, I everyone deserves if you want it. You know, I think you deserve. So there's a lot of things in medicine that we have to work on. And the, and the um, sexual orientation piece is big because with insurance, my experience has been if you are a heterosexual couple trying, then all these doors open for you. But if you're a single woman, one barrier trying, it's like, well, can't you find a partner? Are you sure you're doing this on your own? So they put up those barriers. And then if you're in the same sex relationship, that's not considered really infertility. And so you have to kind of find a workaround for sperm donation. And that really puts women in an awkward position because they're not doing it all the time with the, like the safety of that medicine can offer, making sure the, the semen is tested, making sure your partner's tested. I had one really interesting case of um, a same-sex couple who wanted to do, get pregnant. And so they were doing a sperm donation. They found a man that was in their community that they uh, wanted to, who was offering sperm and they were uh, comfortable moving forward with. And they did all the conversations, but none of like the medical piece did transfer at home, like the self-insemination at home. And it came out on the back end that the gentleman actually had HIV. And so these are profound health effects that, you know, queer communities face because they then, you know, they find a workaround and it's not always in the comfort of like medical communities where we would test the partner, test you, make sure the sperm is safe so that you can optimize your health. And so um, that to me is a really big myth that needs to be addressed because, I mean, they literally put their lives at danger, not having uh, the due diligence that, you know, medicine would offer them. Wow. Uh, That's an incredibly profound story. And, you know, I I appreciate so much of how you just framed that, but it brings to mind the line that a doctor in this episode has when talking about insurance. And the doctor was saying to Alicia's character, they have a code for being attacked by an orca. They have a code for being sucked into a jet engine, but not for gay and desires pregnancy. So it really hits home how really the inaccessibility of these issues is, to your point, a queer and racial justice issue. And I'd love personally to see, you know, the advocacy community take this up in more in more detail. And I also just really appreciated how you framed Blackness and queerness as not overall challenges, it's actually in terms of being a parent, but in the medical establishment context, you know, being a barrier because so often we see those things conflated and just the idea of being Black or queer becomes this problem. Yeah. And I've been in situations where I've been like, can you lie? (laughs) I mean, can there be, because like, why do we have to be creative? about who we are to get the same services that the woman sitting next to me gets. And it's not rocket science, right? Like we all want to have a baby. We all can pretty much figure this out. But if insurance companies aren't listening because there's no one really screaming loud enough, then things don't get changed. You're also reminding me, you know, in the HIV world, HIV positive men who want to have children have to go through an incredibly laborious or expensive sperm washing process, which similarly 
has a lot of financial and insurance barriers. It's uh, it's like you're, you're you're blocked on all sides. Yeah, because the judgment is built in and it's financial. Mm. Built in judgment against who you are in your life and your circumstances. So Dr. Phillips, I want to pivot a little bit because actually how I found you originally was a video that you did about fibroids. And I found this after a very confusing diagnosis that I got um, of PCOS, which has turned out to really not be a correct diagnosis. And I was looking for information from someone who had a lens, racism and identity and understanding, you know, how blackness might be impacting my health. And so I found you at one point in the show, Alicia has to pause her IVF so that she can have surgery to remove uterine polyps on her birthday, no less. And I'd love if you could speak a bit more to this question of fibroids, cysts, polyps, these different kinds of tumors and growths that can happen in a woman's uterus. And what is their relationship to Black women? Are these issues part of why Black women deal with infertility at a rate two times that of white women and their partners? Yeah. So I would definitely say fibroids. And I think fibroids are a really good example of how um, the institution of medicine and research discriminates against women of color. When you think about how common fibroids are in African-American women, you'll see quotes of up to 80% by the age of 50 will have one or more fibroid in their life, right? So that's basically most of us. And when you think about the impact of fibroids, now some fibroids have no impact at all. Don't you know, freak out if your doctor told you you have fibroids, but you don't have to manage them. But some fibroids for women have huge impacts, like they're horrible periods, long periods. They have anemia because they're bleeding so much, bleeding through their clothes. They can't go to work, miss school, can't take care of their families. Like This is a huge impact. I mean, I can only imagine millions of billions of dollars if you calculate the lifestyle impact of fibroids. And how much do we really know about fibroids? We know they're tumors. You know, Black women have them most. But the technology in, in terms of uh, prevention is like nowhere to be found. We have tons of, you know, what I would consider money-making treatments, but the actual prevention piece is not there. And so I argue that if this were a problem for 80% of white women, we would have had a solution like in the 70s, 60s, 50s. This would have long been, you know, taken off the map. And so I think fibroids, are really interesting discussion as it relates to sort of racism in medicine and research and, and how we get marginalized, our issues get marginalized. So I would say for Black women, yes, I really do see fibroids presenting themselves as an issue for some women getting pregnant. I take care of a lot of women. I saw one today. She has like an eight centimeter fibroid. She's 28 weeks pregnant right now. So you can recognize your fertility with fibroids, but yes, we are more likely to have surgery for them. We are more likely to be offered hysterectomy, which ultimately ends your fertility journey, right, for fibroids. And these are things that we have to have a paradigm shift in the medical community so that we don't have such limited treatments for women 
surgeries and, you know, increased rates of hysterectomy. That doesn't serve us. You know, there's a time and place certainly for these things, but overwhelmingly it doesn't serve us. Fibroids make me so angry. I've had two fibroid mm-hmm. removal surgeries. And as Lori says, like when you get a diagnosis like that, there's so little information and even providers can be very confusing about that, what that means for your life, you know, for fertility, for anything. Yeah. Every single black woman friend I told I had fibroids was like me too. And I feel like the most information I got leading up to deciding what to do about them or if to do anything about them was from pooling information from friends. If white women, or especially if men of any race were facing this kind of issue, we would have studies, we would have solutions, we would have over-the-counter prevention. Answers. Yes. Answers, Answers, honey. (laughs) Exactly. I read this month a really alarming study in The Lancet that said that Black women were over 40% more likely to have miscarriages than uh, white women and their partners. For you today, what's driving these disparities and what can we do to change the course? There's so many things driving that. The, I think most succinct public health answer to that are our social determinants of health. And for Black women, it is literally, one, I would say, the stress of racism. We manifest the stress of being Black in the United States. And I don't think it can really be underestimated what our collective history in this country, how it's permeated and changed our bodies, how our various living situations as it relates to where we live, where we get our food from, or the lack of food, you know, the social determinants of health, I think, are what is really changing our bodies. And when you think about how they started 400 years ago, when we got to this country, to me, it it is very clear why we have poor outcomes almost across the board. You know, our rates of preterm delivery, our rates of C-section are higher, uh, you know, our rates of fibroids, our rates of preeclampsia, diabetes, obesity. This is all a huge like Rubik's cube, but it's all together. And so that's, in my opinion, the public health explanation for the results that they see. And it, it doesn't matter if you're here in the United States or if you're in Europe, because still, in general, the black tax, <laughs> you know, exists there too. And we know through research, I'm working on a research paper now that even women of color who are college educated don't escape that black tax. And if anything, pay a higher price for it. And we're trying to figure out what the reasons are for that. But blackness in and of itself as a risk factor is a real thing in a country that has a very significant racist history. Started in slavery, continued in reconstruction, Jim Crow cemented it a little bit more what's his name, 45, put the nail on the carpet. Like these things have been layering for centuries for us. Thank you for that, Dr. Phillips. And it's so real. It's so heavy. It's our bodies. It's our lives. It's our fertility. It makes me want to turn to actually one of my favorite parts of the episode. One of my favorite people in the episode, which was nurse Cordelia. Mm -hmm. Shout out to her. She was the star for me of this entire thing. Like, I just want to be able to like, listen to her voice when I'm stressed out. (laughs) She really felt like a representation of so many 
Black nurses and Black women healthcare providers and going back to the history even of Black doulas. And, you know, it, it felt like that was just a really authentic yeah. moment of care that was captured. And I just wanted to, you know, end on a little bit of a high note with you and, you know, see if you wanted to say anything about Black healthcare providers and yourself as a, as an amazing, badass Black woman healthcare provider who's making a difference every day. What is the difference of care that, you know, Black women can provide or, you know, what are some of the other solutions that you see um, that Nurse Cordelia might have touched on for this audience? Yeah. And you know what? It's, I'm going to tear up a little bit because um, I had a patient today actually have a bad experience with a white provider and it was just like, what are we doing? So when women of color, you know, and any women, but you know, in, in particular, we're talking about women of color. When they come into my office and I see what they're going through, that is the time when I recognize the gift, strength, power, and opportunity that I provide as a physician of color. I don't take that lightly at all, at all. What we saw in Nurse Cordelia were our ancestors coming for us to wrap their arms around us in a world that is often frightening and scary and isolating and confusing. She came from the way back to wrap her arms around, provide support and encouragement. And so when women come into my office, I really try and like get them together real quick. Listen, honey, I know what you're going through. We're going to have this baby. We're going to control the things that we can control. And we're going to have brown and black babies all over the place. And so I really try and help them understand that regardless of what is going on out there, given what our people have gone through, what our ancestors have come from, we will honor them by taking care of our bodies, taking care of our babies, finding joy when people try and steal it from us because we know we are the epitome of a Black girl magic. And so I really try and spend my time with patients, providing them a sense and a recognition of their own power. And um, sorry, I'm tearing up because I was so mad at this doctor. I still have to call her and tell her about herself. But um, I want us to spend our time, especially around issues of fertility, because fertility is not fair, not equally divided. We all come to the table with our struggles. I want all of us to spend time focusing on like our power and everyone has it. Everyone has it. You know, I have patients who come in, my heaviest patient right now is probably like 330 um, pregnant. She has the power to have a healthy pregnancy, to manifest the greatness in this 10 months while she's growing this little human. Everyone has that power. So as a Black physician, I feel like I have the unique position to speak on it, to be plain, and to just be like, look, girl, we're going to do this, and we're going to do it together, and we're going to do it fabulously, because that's what our ancestors would want from us. That's what you deserve. And I don't care what's going on out in your job, out in your house, out in the street you control this and we're going to do this together. And so I like to provide 
a sense of enthusiasm, a sense of partnership, a sense of understanding in a unique way that, I, you know, I think, honestly, we have to be real about it, that some white physicians, male physicians can't necessarily relate to a patient on. I think that for me, that is a gift. And so I really try and communicate with patients in a way that like centers them, that helps them understand that I am on their team. I am their partner. I'm their advocate. And no matter what's going on in the world, I am on their side to get them through this pregnancy, to keep them whole, to keep their precious baby, who, I, who is also mine, right? This is my baby too. So I'm about to meet my baby to keep them on track. And I think that that's something really unique that physicians of color bring to the table. Now, that being said, my other purpose in calling is to train my residents that way. Just because you are a white male doesn't mean that you can't meet your black female patients where they are. You just need training and you need to recognize your bias and you need to learn humility and you need to learn how to talk to people. And I think to some degree, yes, we can train these doctors to be better, compassionate, listening individuals. I'm so glad you said residents, because as you were speaking, I was thinking, how can we clone you? And of course, yeah. you're, already, you're already working on the next generation. And thank you. Yeah. Yes. I stay in there behind. And I point out to them when they're treating people differently. Sometimes, in all honesty, they don't even recognize they do it. That's how deep implicit bias is. And I'll say, yeah, you know, that C-section... Miss Jones, black lady, 30 years. You know, she didn't go home with any pain medicine. Hmm. C-sections are pretty painful. Uh, yeah, you know, Miss Robinson, you sent her like 40 Percocet. What was that about? You know? And I have a conversation with them about when I see their biases showing, when I see them not using the translator phone for patients who maybe don't speak English unacceptable. No, no. When I see them perhaps taking more time with patients that may look like them. I get that. You might have felt a bond, a relationship. That's cool. But guess what? That lady over there needs that side of you too. You just said a whole word. Um, you got me too. <laughs> I'm like so emotional here just thinking about what a different world it would be if more people approach their work like you do. So thank you so much for sharing that. Mm -hmm. Womanly Magazine is a print publication and digital platform providing accessible health information to women and non-binary people through both visual and literary art, lifting up narratives that are often neglected by the typical health magazine. In addition to distributing print editions at no cost at clinics and community centers serving Black, Brown, and immigrant communities, Womanly hosts online events, educational classes, and much more. To learn more about Womanly, read past issues, donate, or become a member, visit womanlymag.com. Womanly Magazine is 501c3 fiscally sponsored by Brooklyn Arts Council. We end every Cringe Watchers episode with a quick rapid fire. We call it our Cringe Fire. 
Okay, I'm ready. Okay. okay. So we'll start easy. First question is, what other shows are you watching or binging right now? Handmaid's Tale. <laughs> I did just finish that. And I'm so glad how it ended. Isn't that, isn't that crazy? That show makes me so violent, but I handmade. Amazing. And what is something that you're finding super cringy right now? I have a young son and I'm finding it really cringy that he is a vector for disease in my family (laughs) because he doesn't wash his hands. And the fact that like he spreads his germs and every, you could see it literally go from person to person to person. It's very nasty to me. So he's very cringy. My three-year-old. Is there an aspect of sex or sexuality that you would like to see portrayed in film, TV, literature, or better portrayed? You know, I would like to see more discussion around young girls and masturbation. I don't think young girls understand how important it is to masturbate and to know what your body is supposed to do before like someone else teaches you. That's super lame. I'm going to stop there because these are short answers, but we need to be masturbating more. Justice for Joycelyn Elders. Okay. This. <laughs> yes. A woman before Justice her time. For- yes. Great. <laughs> Okay, our last cringe fire question is, do you have a favorite scene or depiction of sex or sexuality in TV, film, or literature? You know, what I probably would say is, because it was kind of revolutionary for me at the time, because I was starting to explore my sexuality, is, and this might be super cliche, but Sex in the City, I remember Samantha, like, they would show her doing these positions and I was like, what, bitch? What? Like, and then I would go to my partner and be like, um, can I go like on my handstand? And can you, like, I thought that was really amazing for me as like a 20 something year old because it was just so crazy to see someone who was so liberated and demanded that she be serviced and demanded that she have an orgasm with her experiences. And if it didn't happen, then mm, didn't count. Like, (laughs) I think Samantha was really important for me in my 20s, because it really taught me that sex and pleasure was okay. And sex wasn't just about reproducing. It was actually a sport. It was fun. Love it. So we're boycotting the new Sex in the City, right? No, Samantha. No views from me. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not watching that. I'm not watching that. Yeah. You can't have sex in the city without Samantha, so. Thank you so much, Dr. Phillips. You have just been a joy, and we're so appreciative for you taking the time tonight to speak with us. Yay! I'm so glad we were able to hook up. That was great. Thanks again to Dr. Camila Phillips for sharing her incredible work and her perspective. You can follow Dr. Phillips on Instagram at Dr. Camila Says. That's Camila, K-A-M-E-E-L-A-H. If you like our show, please rate us and tell your friends. You can always tweet at us at CringeWatchers or email us at CringeWatchersPod at gmail.com with story, advertising, or partnership ideas. We have a Patreon. Become a member. Get perks. Get shoutouts on this very podcast. Find us at backslash CringeWatchers. 
Our editor is Karen Y. Chan. Thank you, Judith Walker, for creating our incredible logo and cover art. Our ad music is by Siddhartha Courses. Dallas D.L. Ingram created our theme song. Thank you for cringe-watching with us. Until next time. <laughs>